today is author Lex H. Jones of The Old One in the Sea, The Other Side of the Mirror, Nick and Abe, and a handful of anthologies, including The Black Man, The Black Room Manuscripts, Volume 3, and the latest being KJK Publishing's The Horror Collection's Silver Edition. I, um, I've actually received... The latest anthology, I haven't gotten to it yet due to, as you know, a very large TBR like all of us have. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I noticed that you're actually in uh, quite a few of those. Um, how, how, how'd that come about? KJK yeah. Publishing? Well, I've, I've, I've known Kevin quite a while. Kevin, who, who is the owner of that publishing firm, and um, he's, he's, I've been included in a couple of the anthologies he did uh, quite a few years ago. Uh, and when he came up with this idea of doing these like smaller books, so just having five horror stories in each one and doing that as like a, a sequential series of books uh, that you, would become like a growing collection, he he asked what I thought to the idea and if I'd like to be in the first one, and, and I did. So it's just become like a thing now when uh, when I know he's going to be releasing a new one. If I've got a story that's suitable, then I'll, I'll submit to it. And and as you say, I've I've got in three of them now, I think. Yeah, I'm seeing the uh, gold edition, white edition, which looks like a Christmas one, and now the yeah, silver. Yeah. Okay. Um. Yeah. So what caught my eye was actually uh, the master of extreme horror. I think it's it's pretty hard to argue that Edward Lee is without a doubt the master of extreme horror, and he's in that the newest one, silver edition. That's pretty exciting. Yeah, yeah, it's it's great. I, it's, it, I like the contrast you get in those books because, like, my stories um, are. My horror stories are are nothing like extreme horror. It's like the the furthest thing away from it. My my horror is a very sort of subtle, old school, almost like a Victorian style horror in that it's very a lot's left up to your imagination. If if there is anything gory in it, it's not described. It's it's much more kind of subtle and, and understated. So I think to have a book where you can have both of those type of stories in one collection is really great because I think you'd get it gets a bit stale sometimes if you read a book and every story is like some torture porn thing. So yeah. I think it's quite it's quite good to break that up again. But similarly, if every story is some old fashioned haunted house thing, that'd get a bit stale as well. So to be jumping about between the eras of horror in one collection, I, I, I do think that's a good idea. I agree. It is good to have a diverse collection. And, and speaking of that. Um, so one of the first anthologies that I was ever accustomed to was uh, Sinister Horror Company's The Black Room Manuscripts. They, yeah. The covers are cool looking. They always have an exciting table of contents. And the the actually the only physical copy I own is um, Volume 3. And I bought that when it came out before I, I even really knew who you were before before you and I talked and this is a this is a great lineup just to name a few we got Paul Tremblay Adam Neville Guy Guy and Smith yourself Ray Cluley the, the whole list is is great yeah it's a great book that one it really is uh, I've read the first two I haven't read the, the the latest one I must admit but I read the first two and, and the one that I'm in and they're all really really good collections which when it's got that many stories in it you don't always expect it to be that good because i think 
collections are often served better for having fewer stories because purely statistically, the more you've got, the more likely you're going to have a couple of duds in there. But the the Black Room manuscripts manage to, to always be high quality, even though they have got such a high number of stories in them. Oh, I, I agree. It's it's pretty impressive, their entire bibliography. Um, I've known Justin for a while, too, and I don't know how he does it. He's And I, I still feel like I've known Sinister Horror Company for probably since they came about in 2015, and I still kind of feel like they're underappreciated in the community as a whole. Yeah, it's. I think that everyone who knows of them knows how how high quality a company they are, and how professional, and how how, how properly they manage things like paying the authors and all that kind of thing, which is very much uh, a problem with a lot of smaller firms. Now, I I'm not going to go into the the length and breadth of that, but I'm somewhat. Um, gatekeepery when it comes to that in that I think if you can't afford to pay your authors properly then you shouldn't be running a publishing firm Agreed. so you know I, I know that people say oh but then people can't afford to do it well you shouldn't be doing it then if you, if you can't run your business if you can't run your business properly tough shit you don't, you're not just entitled to run a publishing firm just because you want to if you haven't got the money to do it you don't do it it's that simple if people have written books for you and there's a, they have a contract that says they are going to be paid then you pay them that is that simple and, and Sinister Horror have never ever been a problem with that with any of the authors, like Justin, the owner, he'd, he'd take a pay cut himself before he'd not pay the authors. Yeah, so I agree. Uh, if you can't afford to pay your authors or editors, if you just can't afford to pay people, you shouldn't. You're not ready. That's just not. Yeah. And I think that goes for any business, doesn't it? It's not just a publishing thing. You know, you get you get businesses complaining that. If we paid our staff a fair wage, we wouldn't be able to run the business. Well, you think, well, you shouldn't be running the business then. You're not just entitled to have your own company. Absolutely. Um, and I do agree. I think that Justin and isn't it Tracy Fahey that runs uh, Sinister Horror Company as well? Uh, yes, quite possibly. Yeah, I'm not sure of her exact involvement and I wouldn't like to misquote. But yeah, I know she definitely helps a lot with that. Yeah. Okay, I only bring her up because both of them are, are great people, and I, I've never had a bad interaction with either. And, and, yeah, I just think that other publishers that want to start out should take a look at what they're doing and just take some notes. Um, and yeah, definitely. I kind of wanted to ask you a little bit, not to spoil anything for anyone that might be interested in reading in the uh, any of the Black Room manuscripts, but your short story specifically, um, I'm not sure yeah. if I'm, announced, uh, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this correctly, but AC43 Ron. Yeah, that's right. I, I, to be honest with you, it's like a written thing. I never really thought about how you pronounce it because it's meant to look a bit like a, a license plate or. or a road name you know like where people spell it spell the name with a license plate or something it's, it's meant yeah. to look a bit like that and the word it's meant to spell is acheron which is the the um i think it's ancient greek name for like the road to the land of the dead it's, it's meant to be that so it's, it's more like something that you'd see it written down rather than something like none of the characters in the story ever say that phrase at any point it's just something you see written down oh, okay um i, I just uh how do I say this? It's a short story, 
So without getting into detail, I liked it. I just read it this morning and because uh, I wanted to read something else by you. And that's the only thing physical that I own. So I thought it was a short read. And for anyone that wants to kind of get a feel for you, I, th- I think it's kind of a good example. And I thought it was really funny the way I perceived your writing voice was, <laughs> was you're as polite of a writer as you are a person and <laughs> it just came across to me as really funny because you're writing about horror and horrific things, but you're really polite in your approach. All right. Thank you. Um, that story was done to be almost like a, like a segment you'd get on the twilight zone or something like that. I, I kind of imagine that if you were to make an adaptation of that, it'd be done in black and white. It's just, mm. it, I just, I, I can't see it as like a, a modern sort of horror story it's not even full-on horror it's more like a, a bizarre thing that happened which is unnerving which is why i say it's more like a twilight zone thing rather than a you know a, a, like i did another story recently which de- was deliberately designed to be like a tales from the crypt keeper sort of story that kind of pulpy horror I, I tend to write horror very differently depending on what the sort of tone is that i'm going for well, that makes sense. Um, yeah, I guess it would be along the lines of weird horror. Um, speaking of horror and that tone, is that kind of like a, a British thing in general, or is it is it kind of targeted towards your area of um, England? Because you're from you're from Sheffield, North England, and I'm yes. not. I've never been to that side of the world. Is there? vast differences and if for you example from uh adam neville i know he's not originally from england but him and uh say laura morrow or rich hawkins aren't you guys all spread out in that country yes we are yeah we're all kind of like opposite ends of the country i i live uh, where I live personally, uh, Sheffield is the nearest city to me, but I actually live in the countryside. I'm I'm right on an area that's called the Peak District, which is basically moors and lakes and fog. Basically, that's <laughs> that's where that's where I am. Um, but yeah, Laura is is London, uh, and and Rich is is in another area of countryside, but it's it's down south. It's it's they have a lot of scarecrows and that sort of thing down there. There's lots of farms and all that kind of thing. So, yeah, we it's difficult to explain to Americans because our sense of being far apart is not – I mean, you know, I could drive from where I live to where Laura lives, and to translate that to America, you wouldn't even be halfway across Texas. But <laughs> – you know, but by UK standards, it's a long way. You know, so it's 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 different depending on it's all relative, I suppose, to where you live. For sure. But, and so my, I guess my other question about that specific locations is, is there, if you read her book or someone from her area or Rich's area, and you didn't know them, would you be able to kind of figure out what part of the country they were from? Because I can, I like dialects. Like I can certainly tell in certain parts of of america yes well um i don't think that i would unless it was the type of author who writes a lot of stuff that's set in their backyard so to speak Mm. so like for me i don't write i think i've written two stories that are set where i live one of which is um 
it's, it's in the, the old market building that used to be in Sheffield, which was there for about 200 years. It closed down a few years ago and moved to a new location. And there was this brief period where the market was open, but not to the public. So it was just like this big, empty old Victorian market hall. So I've got a horror story set in that during that period. And I've also got one that's set in one of the lakes near where I live. But other than that, my stories are never set locally. So I think there's nothing particular in style or location about my writing that would immediately denote the fact that it's from a South Yorkshire author. And I don't think there is for the other authors you mentioned either. I think to, to read that from me, it would have to be the sort of author who writes a lot about their hometown. Okay. All right. That makes sense. Well, like Stephen King sets a lot of stuff in Maine, doesn't he? So, you yeah. know, you, you kind of, that sort of thing, which is fine. You know, you, you write what you know. And if, if your hometown is perfect place for horror and myths and legends and stuff, then why, why wouldn't you use that? So it, it does make sense. So what, what's the scene like writer-wise or people involved in the horror community in uh, Sheffield and the surrounding areas? I think it's, well, it's difficult to say. I don't think there's really like, a, a, I don't think we have like scenes in, in that kind of way, in, in the sense that, you know, you don't know who's into horror. It's, it's just something that people do, but we don't have like any kind of event as such that would make you think, oh yeah, look at all these people who are into horror. You know, it's not like if, if you had a, a country music festival or something like that, you know, there's, <laughs> there's, and, and then you suddenly realize that everyone's into country music because of how many people turn up in a cowboy hat. It's not, there's, there's nothing like that really for horror. We have horror conventions here where like people from films and books and all that sort of thing come and do them. And I'm meant to be doing one later this year, but with the, the virus that's going around i don't know whether that'll be still on or not but um that that kind of event but we they have them all over the country it's not sheffield specific so I, I don't think there's anything kind of like specific to sheffield that you would point to and say yeah look we're, we're a big horror place because of this in the way that you could for instance for music because sheffield is quite famous for a lot of uh, famous british bands come from sheffield so that's that's something you could point to and say, yeah, there's a there's quite a strong music scene in Sheffield. I, I don't know if that's necessarily true for horror, but it's a good setting for it because, as I said, it is right on the edge of the moors, and there's there's old, you know, like five minutes from my house, I could take you to a castle that's been there for six hundred years, and you know that, that sort of thing. So there's there's all sorts of stuff like that around here that you can that you can use. Have you used any of those, like that castle, for example? Because that sounds like it'd be inspiring. Uh, one of the stories I've got have, isn't set in Sheffield, but it draws on something, which is something that is in uh, an area of woodland uh, near to where I live. Is there is like the remains of an old turret-looking thing, um, like a circular wall, like that was at some part part of something. But whatever it is, has long since collapsed and submerged and land shifts and all that. So whatever it is, or how long it's been there you got no idea now. You'd need like an expert historian slash archaeologist to tell you that. But I really like that idea of there being a remnant of an old structure that you don't know the origin of. So I I wrote that into a story of mine, which is a story called Foundations, which has been published in a couple of different places now, um, 
because I, so like sometimes I'll see an idea and there's there's another one where um, a different area of woodland, uh, this one a bit nearer to my house, there is a gate which is attached to nothing. So like at some point there was a stone wall either side of it, but the stone wall has long since fallen down, but this iron gate is still there. So there's like the post and the gate and it opens, there's nothing, you can literally just walk around it, there's no point in this gate. But I thought that was quite an interesting horror idea as well. So I've worked that into a different horror story as well called um, Lodge. No, I can't remember the number, but it's Lodge number something about uh, someone who goes to stay in this uh, cabin in the woods and this gate is nearby and ju- just little things like that where if you've got somewhere that's old enough you you can it just sort of strikes as inspiration and you use it in your stories but I, I don't feel the insistence on setting it all in Sheffield even if the inspiration might have come from things that I've seen here hmm. yeah I understand you kind of want to spread your wings so to speak and it you kind of touched on something that I find to be really interesting, and it goes beyond horror. England has a, a longer history uh, than, quote-unquote, civilized America. I'm not sure what else to refer to as. Uh, I know what you mean. America's before we colonized? Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Before there were white people there, basically. <laughs> white and Spanish people. Uh, but yeah. America did have people and civilizations there as long as Britain has. It's just that it weren't western what we would consider to be western civilization put it that way i think that's i think that's fair yeah i mean native americans have been here for god i, I think it's like third i don't know how long it's it's been a long time it's yeah been thousands of years but they didn't have structures like we do where you know you would be able to just see an old castle or a remnant of it because they're all pretty much gone and destroyed yes exactly I do think that about American, a lot of your American buildings, though, in that a lot of them were made out of wood. So even the stuff that is from the beginning of your history probably won't be there for that long. Yeah. You know, um, like your old Texas, um, like not necessarily Texas, sorry, but like your old Wild West towns and stuff that you can still go and visit, they're not going to be there in a couple of hundred years because they're all made out of wood. And they're also, God, Texas, so they're, they're probably only, I don't know, 200 years old. Yeah, but I mean that like at some point the castles in England were only two hundred years old, but five hundred years later they're still there. Whereas these things in America that are currently two hundred years old, in five hundred years they're probably not still going to be there. Oh yeah, they'll be eaten unless they're you know rebuilt with stronger material or something. Possibly, yeah. You might be able to treat the wood somehow, but but yeah, because everything was built with your Western expansion. With everything was built so quickly, there, there wasn't time for stone and big work and everything. So I, I understand why it was done that way. But the the downside of that means that you don't have many old forts and stuff like that that are from the the beginnings of your country. Mm, I'm actually really interested in that period, the colonial period. Uh, yes. Please. Yeah. Up until the American Industrial Revolution, which ended around like the early 19th century, it's just very interesting. I don't personally know of a lot of horror stories that touch upon it. And where I grew up, it's a my hometown is in Bridgewater, Massachusetts, and the, there's actually a, a 200 square mile site of uh, paranormal activity and. It goes back to there's this old swamp, for example, 
it's massive. It covers a bunch of towns. The local Native Americans, they were called the Wampanoag Indians. They referred to it as uh, the Swamp of Evil Spirits. They would go it's in really there. Like, okay. They would go in there and hide away from um, when there was this thing called King Philip's War. Um, they would go into that swamp and, and basically hide because they it was so deep and they wouldn't be able to, you know, get caught and. Um, it's just an area of uh, history that, that I like, and I, I think about you know English history too. And it's your your period of time is pretty interesting as well. Back then, going back a few hundred years, because you got you got so many stories based on that. That's that's what fantasy is. Yeah, yeah. England has got a, a lot of hundreds and hundreds of years of what I suppose what you would call civilized history. I mean, like. As you said, by the time America was being founded, Britain was already an old country with centuries upon centuries of, of stuff. I mean, you you watch any kind of historical film, whether it's set in, you know, Victorian era or the medieval era or, or the time when people like with the Dark Ages or, or whatever era it is, England was there doing this stuff. You know, it, 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 and there's, so there's a lot of eras, and particularly when you're telling ghost stories or anything like that, there's so much stuff you can draw upon there. Whereas if you're if you're doing a ghost story in America, the oldest thing you could have really would be like your colonial settlers, wouldn't it? Uh, yeah, I guess so. I, I like the idea of Native American uh, gods, and they, I did a little research on them, and there's some there's a lot of interesting things that you can explore. Yeah, I like the idea that I always think that's a good horror idea that there was stuff that was being worshipped there before you arrived, and it, that perhaps it's it's still there in some respect, and it's annoyed that it's no longer being worshipped. I think that's a a good idea for a horror basis as well. Of course, we've got a lot of that kind of thing here as well because England was an old country before Christianity arrived, so there's yeah. a lot of there's a lot of stuff that was worshipped and forgotten about before we started deciding that, i mean there is a church um in in uh, york uh, a city that's quite near me um and that church was a church before it got christianity slapped on it so it's now a christian church but it wasn't built as a christian church and i think when you go in and you look at it you can kind of tell you know, you, you can tell it's sort of been repurposed for a newer religion because it, it doesn't look at all like what you think of as a Christian church. And I always think, what used to be worshipped here? What what did people used to, you know, practice in this place? You go back 2000, what, 20 years <laughs> before then, it'd be really interesting to think what if that particular religion didn't take over because it's, it's practice, I think, more predominantly than any other religion in the world. So what if that one religion didn't exist? What what would we what would be the god, quote unquote the god? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? That was the Romans though. The the, the Romans spread that across the world as when they became Catholic. I think if that hadn't happened, it never would have stopped being something of a like an Eastern religion, really. Because mm. at, at that point most of Europe and the West was kind of embracing the kind of religion where, yeah, we've got a God for sky and sun, and but we don't really do anything. You know, we, we believe in science and we believe in 
you know, cleaning your food and looking after yourself. And we don't have this kind of you must follow these laws of God and you must go to church and you must do this and you have these restrictions. You know, people could be openly gay and people didn't have to get married and people didn't. There weren't all these kind of arbitrary rules to control people's lives. And I think if the Romans hadn't embraced Catholicism and spread that across the world, we might have continued down that line and we might have been a more atheist society before now, if you know what I mean, we might have had an extra 500 years of religion kind of being a background thing rather than the controlling force. And then perhaps we'd be more advanced, perhaps we'd be less so. There'd be some artists that would never have been inspired. There'd be some cultural movements that had never been inspired. It's, it opens a whole area of alternate history, really, when you think some things would be better, some would be worse. It's it's massive amount of questions to discuss. That's a that's a plot that I would certainly like to see if someone listens to this and goes, that's a good idea for a book. I would want well, to do that. Yeah, I would. But it's a huge area, isn't it? I mean, oh, it is. <laughs> it, 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 the obvious time travel. What if you change one thing that people always say is, oh, you go back and kill Hitler. But. To be honest with you, that wouldn't have changed much because Hitler was not just one guy just no. standing there saying, I want to do this, and if you got rid of him, that's it, they've done. Someone else would have just stepped in. There were plenty of Nazis who believed exactly the same thing as he did. And if anything, it might have been worse because if they got one in charge who wasn't insane, they might have been an even more terrible force than they were with him in charge. I agree, and if it wasn't for him... Because I'm really, I'm super into history. I'm a total history, not not a his. I would never call myself a historian, but uh, I'm fascinated by World War II, like a lot of people. Yes. Are. There's this one. I don't know if it's still on Netflix. There's this one uh, docudrama. I love docudramas, man. There, I like documentaries, but adding the movie aspect of it is, I'm just locked in. And there's this one called Hitler's Inner Circle. It's oh yeah. Have you seen it? I think it, oh, it sounds familiar. I'm not sure. I've watched. I'm like you. I'm massively interested in World War Two, so I've watched a lot of Hitler films and documentaries and stuff. Because it's always interesting when you think, you know, how did this happen? So I, I may have watched it anyway. So I think that it's just so. I'm gonna watch it again. It's amazing. It, it made me realize. I think I'd rather be on the outside of that circle than in it because all his closest um, leaders or go-to guys, they were at each other's throats trying to kill each other, and some of them were yes. trying to kill Hitler. And if you kill Hitler, I think that that guy, Heinrich Himmler, the one that was in charge of coordinating all the death camps, he would have yeah. been the go-to guy. And if it wasn't him, there's someone else. Look at what happened when we killed when America uh, Navy SEALs killed Osama bin Laden, there's another guy that takes his place. So of course I, there is. Of course there is. I, I agree with you. Like you kill one bad cockroach, there's a dozen more behind him. That's something that always confused me at the end of the original Star Wars films: is they kill the Emperor and that's it. Like, <laughs> no, hang on, he's, he's got like. Hundreds oh of millions of stormtroopers and spaceships, and surely there's enough people on hand who believe the same stuff he did that someone else would just take over. Lex, we were having a serious conversation. You just brought up fucking Star Wars, and I love <laughs> <it>. <laughs> that's. A well, good I mean, the point. the Empire is kind of supposed to be pretty much the Nazis, aren't they? For all intents and purposes, oh, how, the, how can you they know. be the stormtroopers? 
just even the way that like, when you watch the prequel trilogy, the way that the, he does actually become democratically elected and he kind of <laughs> creates problems that he then presents himself as the solution to. I mean, everything about him is Adolf Hitler. Yeah. And and then, you know, slowly removes all opposition and he's, he's, he's clearly inspired by that. He's not like a, a villain to be admired. He's, he's clearly inspired by one of the worst people in history. Yeah, I think hands down he's he's at least top three. I, I'm not going to say he's the worst, but it, I mean, <laughs> he's got a – because there's been some pretty – like Vlad the Impaler was pretty bad. Genghis Khan was pretty bad. Um I can't think of anyone else on the top of my head, but if I looked into it, I'm sure we could name a few more. Speaking I always of... think you have to judge them against the time that they're in as well, because like oh, yes. Vlad the Impaler lived in a pretty brutal time. So for him to be remembered as being awful in that time period, it must have been really bad. Do you know what I mean? This is a time when you had public <laughs> executions and people would go and watch someone being cut open and fed to rats as a public entertainment thing. So in that sort of time period, how bad would you have to be to be remembered as this awful human being? That's a great question. I've never thought of it like that because in my mind, I'm comparing it to current events and what I, the life. No, I you can't. You can't. Society is so... People forget this when when they start getting overdramatic about how the world is, but this is genuinely the kindest, gentlest, most civilized time period that has ever existed. Yeah, we're soft now. We absolutely are. I mean, like I just said, you would have a public event that women and children would go to where you would watch someone get sliced open with spears and fed to rats and things, and that would be something you'd go and do on a Saturday morning. And, you know, the the, the stuff that was just considered normal and entertainment and, you know, what, what you just classed as day-to-day life was so, by, by today's standards, barbaric, that today with how soft we are, like you said, to be classed as horrendous, you don't have to do all that much by today's standards of morality and everything. Whereas in a period when that kind of brutality was the norm, you really would have to go above and beyond to be classed as something that history has got to remember as a monster. Oh my God. That's I mean, a great Jack, Jack the Ripper, Jack the Ripper in 15th century wouldn't have been nothing <laughs> because there's people doing that shit for a job, you know that that he wouldn't have even been stood out. Right. Yeah. And um, go, talking about how life was harder, so there is a great show if anyone wants to get into another docudrama. It's um the series is called The Men That Built America. The first one's about. Carnegie, uh, J.P. Morgan, uh, just all the titans of the American Industrial Revolution. The There's another one that's a quote-unquote prequel about the Western expansion, David Bowie, um, Daniel Daniel Boone, Lewis and Clark, um, Sacagawea, I believe. And the third one that came out last year definitely applies to right now specifically on this topic. It's called The Food That Built America. It's a oh, lot yeah. of it's interesting. It's about it goes about it talks about the guy Henry Hines, um, uh, Milton Hershey, uh, Clarence Birdseye. Which if it wasn't for him, we would not have 
maybe eventually, but he's the guy that brought in frozen food. And think about that, man. Like, yeah, that just, changes everything, doesn't it? What food you can get in what places is completely redefined by the fact that you can freeze stuff. Yeah, we don't need dry ice. I mean, that's the besides like what we got now from our technology. Dry ice, I guess, would be the only way, but it's not as efficient, obviously. And uh, other guys that are in that are um, the Mars company and Henry Hines. Actually, before he he uh, mastered his ketchup ingredient, they had something called Cassup, and I think it's from China. But basically, it just <laughs> so before there were all these rules and regulations on what you could have selling uh, in the food industry. They had lots of claims about um, foods would say that this would cure this or that or food. <laughs> yeah, was of course, rotten. yeah. Everything was not safe. And uh, Cassup would mask the rotting food. It was just, just watching it. It was, pretty, <laughs> it was so gross. So, like, think about that. Like, you can't even try You literally could not trust the food that you were buying in a market. No, no. Well, that's because, like, again, with with our again, how good everything is nowadays. You know, when you buy a food from a shop, that that has to have met certain requirements in order to be for sale. It's difficult to imagine a time period when that wasn't the case. And that was only a hundred years ago. Yeah, it's not even that far back, is it? It, 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 it? it just seems again we are so comfortable and everything now and i'm not saying there's no problems or anything of course there is but when you when you compare it back to stuff that we just take for granted that just wasn't there even a century ago it's really really is the best time to be alive in in the history of mankind because i mean that's that's a question actually um i've discussed this with friends before if you could not time travel, because like if, if, if I were to take you right now and time travel, transfer you back to, say, the Wild West, you would still have all your consciousness of the modern era, so that wouldn't work. You would struggle to fit into that time period. Yeah. But if, if you could be kind of reincarnated at any point in history and live then, but as far as you're aware, that's the only time you've ever lived, so you'd have no knowledge of any other period after that. Would you actually go back and try any other period, or would you actually think, now, nah, now is the best time to be here? Because uh, I mean, honestly don't think there is – for me personally, I honestly don't think there is any period I would rather be in. Now, time travel is different. If you're talking about you can just pop in and visit places like Doctor Who, that's different. But I'm not saying that. I mean just full-on you live there and that is your life. Huh. I am trying to think, and I th- – if I had to pick a time, it'd probably be the 70s or 80s, <laughs> not in the 20th century, because it's I love that far back. But yeah, no, I, I love that music. Besides that, I I wouldn't want to just be born in any other time period because I I love to go on eBay and buy books, or yeah. I like I like pursuing things in the creative field, and I want to. You know, I'm starting this podcast, and without the capability of the internet, which wasn't this uh, active, like the internet that we know it. it, So, sorry to jump around, but back when I was kind of starting to really play video games, was in the 90s, and I didn't have an internet adapter until 
PlayStation 2, and I specifically remember it being for this this game called SOCOM, Navy Sales. Oh, yes, yeah. It was shit, man. Like, as you know, like, <laughs> not the game, but the internet connection. And uh, I got into, in the early, early 21st century, uh, Valve games such as Half-Life, Counter-Strike, Team Fortress Classic, and that started to pick up probably like 20, 2003. So jump ahead to right now. I love where I am right now. I like the technology because I can talk to like you. You're in, you're four hours ahead of time uh, from from me. Like where else? What other time period could I do that and, and get instant access to talk to you? Yeah, it's definitely made the world a lot smaller, hasn't it? But also like it, that's only like within the last century. You know, yeah. just the fact that I could I could say something to 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 you, or even someone far less educated than you, I could say like, oh, you know, in India they've got cats that are fifty foot big, and you'd say, <laughs> no, they haven't. That's bullshit. But if I said that to someone in nineteen ten, they might believe that because they've got no, they haven't got a television where they can watch things about giant cats in India. They haven't got the internet. They probably haven't got books. They, they you know, the the they'd have no frame of reference to disprove that. So if I'm someone who's traveled to India and they haven't, it's my word against nothing. So it, it was much easier to spread nonsense, wasn't it, in that way? Absolutely. And I don't know if you know this, but during the Western expansion of America, Thomas Jefferson and everyone else, because they only knew, uh, I don't quote me on this, but I know that they didn't have anything Knowledge-wise, they didn't have anything to refer back to in California or <clears throat> connecting states. They they thought legitimately that there could have been dinosaurs there back in <clears throat> back in the was it like late early 1800s? Because they didn't That's know. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of exciting, though, isn't it? To think that at some point you might be visiting this land and thinking there might actually be dinosaurs here. Yeah. Um, Marco Polo, he, he's got, there's a book about his accounts, the first international traveler, uh, of the world. And he writes about seeing Royal China, I believe it's Chinamen that were being carted by essentially dinosaurs. And I think he was around the 1500s. So I'm, I'm not sure if it was like giant lizards or whatnot, but that's really interesting to think about. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I, I do like that kind of, there's kind of a, a more magical, that kind of ignorance of that time allows you to tell stories. It's one of the reasons that a lot of my stories are set in the past because I think the internet and the immediate access of knowledge kind of kills a lot of mystery with things like that. I mean, if you, if you got, if you thought your house was being haunted, you could do a quick Google search on your phone to figure out what to do about that in about a minute and a half. It, it, it's not like the big mystery that it would have been in the 1950s or something, is it, where you have to get the vic around or whatever. You, you, you could figure it out yourself pretty quickly with the access to knowledge that you have. Absolutely. <clears throat> That's why books are the best form of art, in my opinion, um, is – Fantasy, an interest of yours at all? It depends what sort of fantasy you mean. Um, I, I, 
I like it where there's a jumping on point. I, I find some things, some sort of fantasy is very difficult to get on board with for me. Again, if you're interested in this, then that's great. But but like, so like The Witcher is great because you can feel like you can just jump straight in with that and it's got an, a relatable protagonist. But when I'm like three pages into a fantasy novel and I'm expected to know 500 years of history between the elves and the dwarves and this and that, and I just think, oh God, give me something I can... You know, I, I think Lord of the Rings is a fantastic example of that done well because it immediately gives you something that you can latch onto. Here's a, a guy who inherits something from his uncle on his birthday. And that something might actually be a lot worse than they think it is. And it's, it's, you know, you, you can latch onto that, but I, I find some fantasy books for me personally, it's difficult to find a jumping on point. Yeah, actually that's pretty true. Um, I found that to be the case with the Silmarillion, um, the prequel, of Lord of the Rings. I know pretty much everyone I talked to hated it and I understand why. And there was so, I read that after I read the Hobbit and the, the trilogy. And I read one of uh, Tolkien's cause he wrote like, I don't know, like 5,000 manuscript pages or more of, of uh, middle earth lore. And of one of those books, um, I think is like unexpected, I don't know what's called. I'm just going to make it up. So I'm not sure what the title's called, but it was just uh, backstories of the Oh, that's is it Silmarian, Silmarian or something something like that. It's it, it's a word that probably does mean something, but it, I, I I don't know the Yeah, I know which one you mean, yeah. Yeah, so I read the Silmarillion um after like five four or five other Tolkien books and it was still kind of difficult. They were going off on about different gods and there's just it's like you're shoved off a cliff and you're like all right learn how to fly right now <laughs> yes yes i know what you that's the problem i have with a lot of sort of high fantasy stuff yeah it, it, it's where do you start with this what do you relate to whereas if you're taking like a journey and you slowly build things up like you do with with the witcher for instance where new stuff's introduced and it slowly builds on the stuff you've already got then i i, I find that that's fine and then in that case i do enjoy fantasy but but yeah i'm not a fond, fond fan of that kind of way you immediately expected to know like the entire history of this world that's not even a real place i think game of thrones does that really well where it builds yes off it does of, yes it's a really yeah. good example i wish she came up with a new book the <laughs> book uh six i think it's book six that he has to come six, up with I think- yeah, oh, I'm not sure, but yeah, there's one that's been delayed for quite some time, hasn't it? Yeah, that's actually a good lesson um, for writers. Never, ever, ever say this book will come out on this date because him, George R. R. Martin, and Patrick Rothfuss are two of the biggest names in fantasy. They're also two of the biggest names of what not to do on this one specific example. Um, that Pat- Patrick Rothfuss came out with... Uh, he said that his trilogy's done. Um, came up with two books. Uh, the third one was supposed to come out a while ago. Still not done. Not sure why. Uh, I don't think art should be rushed, but I also think it's a good lesson for new writers to never ever announce a, a predetermined date. <laughs> no, I think it's there's so much that can happen, isn't there? Oh there's, yeah, let, that, let's get that to might the affect it. Yeah. 
And I think one of the, the, the issues with the Game of Thrones thing as well is that the series has finished now and people kind of have an idea how it's going to end, even if it deviates from that a little bit. So as a writer, how how motivated would you be to write that since people already know it? it I was it, actually going to ask you that too. Do you know what I mean? It's a bit... I, I wouldn't have had allowed the TV adaptation to get ahead of the books if it was me, but... You know, I'm, I'm, you can't speak for other people and how they do things, but but yeah, I think um, that would, for me personally, that would kill my motivation to even bother writing the last book. To be honest, if it were me, and oh, I mean that's such a rare thing to spotlight for a writer to be in, but if it were me, I think if I knew it was because he didn't know how many books it was going to be at first, no. but. I personally outline books, um, and if it were me doing it, I think I'd outline it, and I would try tackling the whole series, take as many years as I have to to write all the the whole thing out, and then I, I would have something to kind of motivate me to get it done before the TV series came out. Because if a TV series ran through the entire series before my books came out, I don't think I'd want to write them. No, that's that's the problem I'd have as well, I think. Because you just sort of almost think, what's the point? How many people are going to bother reading this now? But I, th- I think they're going to sell a lot. He's still going to... I get what you're saying, but he's probably going to make a killing. He will, because people didn't like that last series, which I think is kind of a, a blessing in disguise. If people thought the last season of Game of Thrones was absolutely brilliant and it couldn't possibly be improved upon and and it was a flawless ending to it then i think that would have hurt the sales of the book but because the 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 the, the last series was so unpopular and people didn't like it that might actually help the sales of the book because people want to see a better version of it what did you did you watch it the entire yeah. series what did you think of the what do you think of the series and what do you think of season 8 I liked the whole thing. I thought it was slow in places, slower than it needed to be. Um, But I liked it. I didn't think the last series was as bad as everyone else said. But I think there is definitely a a noticeable difference between when it switches from based on the books to when it's not. I think you can tell when it kind of slips into being TV writing because there is a difference between – an artist with a vision writing a story and 12 guys sat around a table in a writer's room trying to figure out what to do next episode. There is, there is a difference between those two types of writing. And I think one is vastly superior to the other. Um, but I think you can tell when it switches from one of those to the other. I agree. I think it's suddenly like, um, it suddenly seems a bit shallower and there's suddenly a lot of things like like the first five or six seasons, like every line of dialogue, every scene, everything matters. Everything seems like it's been thought about. Everything has got a depth to it. Whereas in the later ones, when it's not got that novel that it's based on, it suddenly seems a lot like TV writing where there's things are said just to move you to the next scene. And, and there's a lot of things that you have to overlook, like how did he get from there to there so quickly? And you just have to just, just ignore that and carry on with it because the story needs to keep going. And that's when it becomes like television writing. And 
that's because television writing has a different method and it's got different pressures and timescales to a novel. And I understand why that's the case, but I think there is a noticeable change there. Absolutely. I, uh, I personally think it's one of the best shows ever made, but season six to me was my favorite. The one with the uh, Battle of the Bastards. That's like the best episode, yes. in my opinion. Um, yeah, it's great. Although I do think there's something to be said that however it ended, people weren't going to be happy with it. Because oh, anything that's gone sure. on for that long and it's got that big a fan base, people are going to not like the ending. Yeah, look at Seinfeld. <laughs> it was the biggest well, show yeah. on TV. And lots of hate for the ending. My The reason I didn't like season eight it wasn't because of who Danny turned into, which makes perfect sense. That yeah, was a I think that complaint. was – anyone who thought she was going to be this benevolent, lovely white queen would not <laughs> be paying attention at all. No. It's like, at what point did she do anything that made you think she was going to be a kind ruler? Everything was about her and her desire to be on the throne and her thinking it was her birthright and her wanting power. And she's only kind to people when they're willing to get down on the knees and kiss her ass. You know, it, it's – there's nothing in her behavior through the entire series that makes you think she's going to be a benevolent leader. Oh, I agree. Um, my whole reason for not loving season eight is because it built up, like from a writer's point of view, it built up a lot of plot holes. It had a lot of major plot holes. Like they, I'm not going to get into details about it in case someone hasn't seen it and wants to watch it, but I just think that they had a lot of loose ends that weren't like, oh, this is meant for the viewer to like kind of have their own interpretation. I just think they rushed it. Yes, I agree. It did feel like it had been rushed. Yeah, the pace picked up quite drastically and so much so that things sort of get swapped, swept aside. Um, and also, I don't know if you know this, and I don't know if I – I think the Mad King – I'm pretty sure because George R. R. Martin takes a lot of real life history. Um, pretty sure he based it off of King George III, which was America's last king, and he was known as the Mad King. He was a he did a lot of good, but he was also a little crazy. Yeah, we've had a few of those. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I kind of want to move on to something that I've been wanting to talk to you about for a while. I want to save it for later towards the end of this episode. But for all those that haven't heard me gush about the old one in the sea, it's – and I didn't even plan on talking about The Hobbit before this. I claim it to be as good as The Hobbit in the sense where it's not a – your book, The Old One in the Sea, is not a fantasy – but they were both intended for uh, children. Um, yeah. They're both just as enjoyable for adults. They're, I can imagine myself as a teenager loving this because it's it's just – it's so fun and it makes you – it does what the Chronicles of Narnia does for me anyways. It makes me feel like a kid and it sucks me into that story. And even if I'm not having a bad day, like – who doesn't want to be happier? And that's what it did for me. Well, that's that's very nice of you. Thank you. Yeah. How has your feedback been on the book? Oh, good. Yeah. I've not had anyone say they didn't like it. I've had a few people say things like, um, oh, I don't think you should do Lovecraft for kids. And, you know, but the, the, those are the same sort of people who don't like when you get a new version of 
Superman or whatever, you know, and that's fine. You know, there are there are purists out there who are like, no, it was it's perfect as it is. There's no point in changing it. And yeah, that's that's fair enough. You can feel like that if you want, but I personally disagree. I, I think you can. I mean, even if you don't like the latest adaptation of something, that's fine. It's not taking away the other one that you do like. So you can just read the original Lovecraft books if you want to stick to that and not like any of the the other adaptations of it. And that's fine. It's, it's not robbing you of it. But yeah, that's the only kind of negative feedback that I've had from it is, is people who are kind of curious about what you should and shouldn't do with Lovecraft's ideas. But otherwise, it's been amazing. Yeah, people really liked it. I'm really happy to hear that. Um, I actually hear that idea when I first saw it being advertised with Ginger Nuts of Horror. I was like, hmm, I I love Lovecraft, uh, the author. I don't know if I'd like him as a person, but I no, love him. That's, that's a, uh, yeah, that's something we have to deal with with a lot of people, artists now, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, but I love him as an author and – he's his stories it's so crazy he he doesn't really have a novel um i think his longest story is like forty thousand words and he's just so brilliant and he's so addictive and his stories are so in my mind kind of perfect and it makes sense how it evolved into how inspiring he is today and i just yeah. didn't i didn't like the idea of Lovecraft being turned into a kid's book at first because I thought, well, he's if I saw his creatures on a film, they'd probably be cartoonish and silly. If I saw them in real life, I'd probably shit myself. And <laughs> I, I didn't see how you can make it a, a interesting as a or not just you personally, but anyone can make it into a kid's story. And you did something that I didn't think was possible, and I don't know if any other author did this or has done this, but you made Cthulhu lovable. How how the fuck is that? How is that a thing? <laughs> well, I was when I came up with the idea to do this as a kids book. I was very keen to not make it overly um, cutesy. Like there are already kids versions of Cthulhu where it's like. You know, he's got the massive googly eyes and he poops rainbows or whatever, you know, and I think, yeah, that's that's fine. That's fine. You know, as I said before, all adaptations are valid if that's what you, the inspiration you take from it. But I didn't want it to be something like that. I wanted this to be a genuine story with real heart and real emotion to it. And yep, Cthulhu's a little bit cuter than he would be normally because that is the nature of the story. But... I didn't want it to be cutesy and silly and, and like something, a toy that you'd buy from a Japanese shop. You know, I, I didn't want it to have the, the that element to it. it. It still needed to be a kid's story in the vein of something like The Iron Giant or something like that, where it's it's an actual story with actual characters and it's it's not just silly things going on. And I think the kind of the cuteness comes, the, the friendliness of him comes from that. But that is addressed within the book without spoiling it. The fact that you're expecting Cthulhu to be one thing and he's actually something else in this book, that is actually addressed in the book itself as to why there is that difference. So I, it's not that I was unaware of that fact that people would think that. Actually, yeah, you, you made a Jim Ginger Nuts of McLeod made a intro. And then you made an intro. 
and I think that was beneficial. I'm not always a fan of intros because sometimes not necessary, but for this book, it was very beneficial because you, yeah, you address like what we talked about previously that uh, the purist is just for adults because you're talking to children and you're like, that's okay. Basically, it's our little secret that this is really Cthulhu and. Here's the insider point of view as to why he's different. I thought that was really smart. Well, thank you. Yeah, I thought that was just necessary to point out. Um, but again, if you when you get to the end of the story, it does actually say that uh, you know what why why there is that difference in in versions of him. So it is it is covered in there. Oh, I remember, um, and I. I thought that was a good approach too um because anytime you change a popular character like just uh, think about any of the marvel characters that have been changed or uh the gunslinger in the dark tower series how it was portrayed by um by black Act- yeah by black actor yeah. and i saw people up in arms like I don't know, but I think actually you do this too, but I, I like to address who the person is as opposed to go into details about what they're wearing or what their hair color or skin color is because that's, yeah. I'm going to connect with the per- – like I don't care what they look like. I'm going to be friends with someone who they – you know, based on who they are. Yeah, I think the only time you have to address – that kind of thing really is if race is an important aspect of their character. Yeah. You know, yeah, that's true. Uh, but if it's not, so like two obvious examples within pop culture. So Superman, right? Superman could be black. There's no reason he couldn't be. Right. He's he, an alien. He's, he's, he's an alien who <laughs> yeah. looks human, crash lands on a farm and is raised by a human couples. Superman could be he's traditionally displayed as being white, but he could also be black. He could be half caste. He could be Indian looking. He could be Asian looking. It doesn't matter at all because right. his race is in no way relevant to his character. Now, for Batman, I would argue he needs to be white because his background is that he is from an old money American family. And they're going to be white. They're not going to be black. It wouldn't be realistic at all to say that the Wayne family is black. The only way you could get around that is if you said that Bruce was adopted. And that would then be adding a whole other element in which isn't traditionally there. But unless you do that, I would argue that Bruce Wayne generally needs to be a white guy. That's interesting. huh? Because it's important to his character. Yeah. Not not that it matters what colour Batman's skin is, but just because race history in america being what it is you don't have any old money black families that's a good point um yeah yeah i think objectively you're right um one thing that i did want to cover before we jump off to another topic for the old one in the sea it's illustrated by liam is it pays yeah so liam pays hill he nailed it. Well, what's I know you guys are friends. I've talked with him quite a bit. Um, How did you guys meet? Uh, we met through uh, a mutual friend of ours who's um, he's in he's a musician and, and Liam's also a musician when he's not doing uh, comic books and artwork and stuff. And um, we met through him um, just not specifically for this project, but just just so sort of became friends and then. 
uh, I liked the artwork and stuff that he did. And then I thought he'd be a good person to ask when I decided that I wanted this book to be illustrated. Um, and we spent a year or so going back and forth over designs and getting it just right. And he just immediately seemed to get exactly what I was talking about when I described what I wanted from these images and what I didn't want from these images. And he just immediately seemed to pull from what I was trying to say. Um, which is great because something I think you do sometimes get with artists is that they draw what they want to draw regardless of what you've told them in the brief. <laughs> and I think, no, this is illustrations for my book. It needs to look like my characters. You know, if you don't want to do that, don't take the commission, you know, but he, 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 he just nailed exactly what, what I wanted him to do. And like almost like perhaps a second attempt at it, it was exactly what I'd pictured which is deliberately not too detailed, not too... And that's intentional because I think, you know, with children's books, not necessarily where you get artwork, but even from the front cover, where it annoys you because the way they've drawn the characters isn't how you picture them. Mm. Do you know that thing where, you, you know, you're reading a character and you picture them a certain way and yes. then they release, a, they release a new version of the book with a different front cover and that front cover now has a picture of the character and it's not how you pictured them and it's really, like, disjointing. Well, I wanted to get away from that by having, like, a vaguely cartoonish, not particularly detailed version of these characters so that it isn't going to contrast with what you've got you might form in your head. I think he did a good job with that. Um, obviously, Howie, uh, based off of H.P. Lovecraft, it, it looks like what he would look like as a cartoon. And Cthulhu, yes. Cthulhu's pretty great, too. I like how his eyes are what they would be if he was an underwater creature because they would be like uh, something that would ref- – they would be like reflectors, basically. Yeah, well, it talks about his eyes being full of stars. That's that's referenced quite a lot in the book. Yeah. Um, so that was yeah, that was important. Um, so the, the having it as this like like you said, like an octopus sort of eyes or something like that. That was I thought that was a really good touch with the artwork. I loved his artwork so much that I actually me and him talk quite a bit now and. I got into his music because um, it just came up in conversation. I can't remember if you told me or if I just found out talking to him. And um, I listened to like two of his CD, his band's albums. I thought they were so good that he's actually doing the intro for this. And I'm not really bringing this up to tell you because I think you know, but just for yeah. for people listening, because um, even even when I give him credit and. Whatnot. Like I commissioned the intro for this, and whenever I need interlude uh, sound effects, he he made that for me too. And I mean, he made the first version, came out with it, sent it to me, and I'm like, okay, so he's in my head. <laughs> How do he do this so well? <laughs> yeah, he's he's really, but it's because he listens. He listens to what it is that you said you wanted, and then he goes and applies his his efforts to creating what you've asked for. And I think that's so important when you when you're doing something for somebody else. It, it might not be what you would want to draw, but ultimately you're not drawing it for yourself. You're taking on a commission, so you need to listen to what you're being asked to do. And he's brilliant at that. He's so far I've seen him do it for your book with illustrations, and he's done it for my show with 
music. And I, I just think that he is someone worth having a wider audience. He He's someone that I want to talk to eventually, too. Um, but I know you and me appreciate him. And he's also yeah. fun. He's also real nice and funny. And he is. He's lovely. He's a lovely guy. Yeah, he's, I'm regularly around at his house, so he's here. Yeah. He showed just me just a, hanging out, not doing work stuff. Just just right. hanging out. He showed me a hilarious picture of you and him, and I'm gonna fuck up the park, but I think he said something like Alice in Wonderland themed. I'm gonna fuck oh. up the name. What do you remember? Do you have any idea what I might be referring to? <sighs> I'm not sure. He's, we've had a few, is it was it a costume party? It wasn't. You guys were at some outdoor park. There's statues. Oh yes, right. Yes, I know which one you mean. It's we're both riding on the back of a wooden bow. <laughs> like a, yeah, yeah. There's this place in yeah. I remember that one. There's this place in uh, near where about an hour away from where we live. Um, it's called the Forbidden Corner, and it's basically like loads of mazes and puzzles and strange little follies and things um that it's basically like the closest you can get to being in like an alice in wonderland type world but in real life it's like you have to follow puzzles to find your way out and there's all sorts of things that you think you've gone through the right door but then you're back where you started and and there's like this one bit where like you're walking down this tunnel but then the tunnel gets smaller so by the time you get to the end it's about the size of a cat flap and you have to drag yourself through it but when you started walking through it it was a six foot door and just all sorts of bizarre things like that and that photograph of us that you're talking about was from there okay that i love that like i you know what you're bringing this up uh describing these things it made me realize i love british authors lewis carroll I love Alice in Wonderland, uh, C.S. Lewis, J.R. Tolkien, technically not British. He's from South America, uh, Africa, but he grew up in, in England. Yeah. Um, so I'll count it. And then you uh, – honestly, I feel like talking to you for as long as I have and reading your stuff, I feel like you could, if you ever wanted to pursue a fantasy novel, that it would be pretty damn awesome. Well, I'd, I'd never – rule anything out you know i i've so far i've got three full-length books published one of which is a a literary fiction fantasy one of which is a, a noir crime novel the other is a, a children's book and i've also got a bunch of short horror stories written so i i don't stick to a particular genre so it's not that i'd never write fantasy it's just that i haven't done it so far but if if an idea comes up and i think it's worth a full-length novel then yeah I'll, I'll, by all means i'll do that but it's also you've got to think of something that's not already been done right because you know like elves and dwarves and dragons and wizards and that it's, there's lords in it I, i'm not saying there's no new ground to be covered because there probably is but I'd, I, I would want to get away from that if, if it was possible to do something that was classed as fantasy and yet not have all the traditional tropes and races and stuff then i would i would prefer to go down that line I agree with you. I think that it's been, uh, and I don't mean to come off stubborn, but I feel like Tolkien nailed it. He's obviously the best example. And then George R. R. Martin's like, well, here's what it would look like if it was vi- super violent, and he nailed it. So I, I personally don't want any more dragons in my life. <laughs> no, I think George R. R. Martin's version of it is almost like it, it, it's almost like the 
post-apocalyptic version of Lord of the Rings, isn't it? All, the, all those old races have died now. There's just a couple of dragons and there's a couple of magical creatures, but not many of them. And whilst a few people know how to use magic, it's very minimal. It's almost like that world's dead and gone and it's been replaced by this cold, hard world, hard world of humanity and all their problems. And there's just a few remnants of that old magic world in it. Whereas in Lord of the Rings, it's full on magic world going on, isn't it? That's true. And the way the Return of the King ends is where uh, Aragon rules for 500 years and it's great and all this and that. But guess what? You got people and people eventually end up being crazy and wars happen. That's interesting, though, isn't it? Do you think he's going to stay a good king for 500 years or is he end up going to becoming corrupt and... You know, because the idea that anyone is going to rule, I mean, we the, the reason that America has its two term system is because it's generally understood that letting anyone stay in power for too long is a bad idea. So how's somebody going to be after 500 years? That was uh, I watched on an interview that was um, Martin's one. Besides not having a religion in Lord of the Rings, his other biggest complaint was that the way it ended, saying that he ruled 500 years. He, he goes, so what happened to all the other orcs that didn't die or all the yeah. other bad things that didn't die? And um, to go to your point about the first president, yeah, uh, it was up to George Washington, really. I mean, if he wanted, he could have had the Washingtons been the one and only fa- a, a royal family, but he was smart enough. To know, like, this isn't going to work if I do this because we'll have a repeat of, of what happened. Yeah, what's the point? What, what's the point in getting away from an entrenched system of rule and ruling families and then replacing that with a new one as soon as you start somewhere else? I mean, to be honest, that's a political debate, but I would argue that America's kind of fallen into that trap now anyway. The idea that anybody can become president is not really true anymore, is it? You, you've, you've, that was the original system, but it's not really true now, is it? Yeah, it's all right saying, oh, we had a black president. Yeah, you did, but he was a millionaire black president. You know, yeah. let's, you know, let's not get away from the fact that you've still got to be from one of these ruling wealthy families if you want to get any of that office. Well, the last guy from my... Not even my like I he's okay JFK we're both Irish we're but we're both raised Catholic from Massachusetts but um that's where the connection stops because for, <laughs> my family grew up in the Cape Cod like it, it was a second home due to my paternal grandparents retiring there and I thought I knew that area pretty well. And then I thought I knew what rich Cape Cod looked like. But then I saw what's called the Kennedy Complex. It's in this really, really nice neighborhood. Lex, um, I can't even contemplate how much money they have. It was insane. (laughs) I was like, this is kind of. that, That sort of thing, though, when you get these families who you know. They're either going to be a president or a, a high-ranking politician or something like that, because they couldn't possibly not be. That's pretty much the same as royalty, isn't it? Except rather than coming from bloodline, it comes from money. Yeah, but it's the it same is. thing. It's basically yeah. the same thing. America really kind of does have its own royal families now. Yeah, there's a few like the Clintons, the Bushes. Uh, I could say the Trumps. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, it's true. Trump Trump is an example that you certainly don't have to be the brightest and most educated intellectual person to become president if you've got enough money. <laughs> it, you know, that's that's it, money is ultimately the the be all and end all of everything, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, without getting. I mean, we, can I just say though, there is no way that is in no way am I saying that that is strictly an American thing. We have we still have what we call the um, the old school tie is the term that people use in Britain. I don't know if you've heard that. It means that like if you went to the right school, like private schools and stuff, and you had a particular tie, then you will be friends with other people who have that tie and their parents are rich and and it's all that sort of thing. Like people getting into a job because of who the parents are and who the parents are friends with and you know they all went to the correct schools and all that sort of thing. And we get a lot of that in our politicians. Like you'll you'll not get like in a hundred politicians in Britain, you'd be lucky if two of them didn't go to a particular school. I does, never does that, heard that. that sort of thing. Yeah, we've got a lot of that. And again, their intelligence has nothing to do with it. You get people who you think there is unless you went to that school and came from that family, you wouldn't get near a job requiring that level of qualification because you're an idiot. The only reason you're in it is because you went to that particular school and your parents were wealthy and they're friends with those other people who are wealthy and it's all kind of tied up and it's it's very difficult to get into if you're not a part of that. I think that's human nature, unfortunately. Seems to have fallen into that very much so, doesn't it? It's it's it, and because like America really was like the most modern example of a, a, a shot at breaking free of that. It's like you had a chance there at setting up a society that doesn't fall into those traps, that does allow everybody the same opportunities, that doesn't have this class system based on how much money you've got and who you're friends with and who your parents are. And that did not last very long at all, did it? Before you uh, fell into the same traps as Europe. Um, by, all, by no means, like I said, I'm no historian, but I think that it probably stopped being a thing after, I don't know, a few presidents. It, yeah, it, it really didn't last. And it's, it's unfortunate because, again, it's a, an alternate history question, but you think that genuinely could have been an example of this could be a this could have been a country where anybody was able to become president or you know, a true equality across the board where things aren't ruled by money and everybody does have the same chances. And that's what America was meant to be. And it didn't really work out that way, unfortunately. And I just don't think we'll get another chance at that now. There's not going to be, there's no massive landmass that's yet to be populated. It's not going to happen again. That was it. America was the last chance at this, really. Yep, not, not, in, not in this world anyways. Uh Maybe so, on Mars. <laughs> yeah. that we get some Mars. So I want to jump to something going back to the hobby. We talked about birthdays, and I know yours is coming up, but this show yeah. will not air. It is what April fourteenth today. Uh, sorry, not April. Sorry, no, it's, uh, it's March fourteenth. Yes. <laughs> sorry about that. March fourteenth, twenty twenty. This show will not air for another two and a half months, probably. Um, so when is your birthday? Uh, March 25th. Okay, yeah, so it'll be long past your birthday. But I bring up your birthday because um, I love those pictures that you posted of previous birthday parties. And <laughs> it's yeah. awesome. Like, you're an adult, but you're like, fuck that. I'm going to have fun with my friends. And it looks like a mini uh, cosplay con. Like, it, it, t- talk to me yeah. about that. Yeah, we do – 
house parties, but we do costumed theme parties. And the theme has been things like comic books, it's been sci-fi, it's been obviously Halloween, we do horror, uh, and uh, it's been medieval stuff, it's, it's, I can't remember all the different ones, Disney stuff, also video games. Uh, and this one, this time we're doing cartoon characters. Uh, and the reason we started doing that really was because I found it to be a great icebreaker because my friends are... I have quite an active social life. I'm not one of those people who 90% of their friends are online. I, I genuinely do have about 40 real-life friends who I see on a regular basis. So, my, But they're all from different areas of my life. I've got some that are old school friends, some that are college friends, some that are friends from jobs that I no longer work at, some that are friends from jobs where I work now, some that are just friends I've met along the way and friends of friends and all that kind of thing. And some of these people know each other and some don't. So I find that everyone turning up in funny costumes and immediately be able to get photographs with each other and, and talk about, oh, that costume's great. How did he make that armor and all that? It, it's immediately, it, it takes the pressure off thinking, what are you going to dress in and what are you going to talk about? It, immediately it's funny and it just breaks that ice and, and, I, and it just works. So we've just kept doing it. And then everyone just puts such great effort into the costumes that it just, it, it's just become a thing that we do now. I love that. I, I really like the ones that uh, you have personally uh, made yourself. They look great. And it looks like everybody really does put a hundred percent effort into it. They do. They really do. Yeah. And it's, it, it's just, it's it's finding that balance is tricky for me with costumes because you, it, like when you go to a cosplay event or something and you're going to stand in front of a stage, get some photographs, and then that's it. That's one thing. But when you're going to be at a party and you're going to be playing games and standing around talking and drinking – your costume's got to be practical. You know, you can't have like six foot styrofoam wings sticking out of your back or anything <laughs> like that. You know, so it's a case of choosing a character that is practical at the same time. So there's a bit of a balancing act to be done. Yeah, that's a good point. Imagine someone with big ass wings just turned, oh, how's it going? What happened yeah. over there? Knock people over. Yeah, exactly. But I also like to decorate the house according to whatever the theme is. Um, just because I think that's quite fun to do as well. Very um, immersive. So I, yeah, I just like to do that. And we always have games and stuff that are themed according to what's going on. Because, again, games is a good icebreaker because I don't drink myself, so I don't have that, like, social lubricant. So when I turn up <laughs> at other people's parties, I uh, I don't really know what to do with myself. So... If, if you don't know anyone and if or if you only know one or two people, perhaps it's very difficult if you're not drinking, you just sort of stand there and think, what, what do I do here? Whereas if there's a game or something, that question is answered for you. That's and great. then by, by playing the game, whatever it might be, you're immediately interacting with people you don't know. So then when the game's finished, you know, these people now, and now you can talk to them and it, it kind of breaks down those social barriers and i don't know if it's as big as a problem in america because generally speaking you guys seem to be a bit more brash and confident than we are anyway but in britain those are the kind of things you have to think about and work around when you're doing a social event i think that's so awesome and uh i i, I don't know i personally think i'm super strong as a personality 
And that is good, but it's also bad because I could come off as too much to some people. I've heard it before, and that's fine. But um, I, I've made friends with people that are super shy, but there comes po- there comes points where I'm, like, questioning myself if I'm being too much because they're not talking back. So well, if there's a game there, that's, that's going to yeah. be perfect. I think it depends. When you say too much, I think it, for me, I know what you mean. Not not with you. I've never found that, but with, with other people. But I think whether or not that's a negative thing depends on the way in which they're too much. If they're just quite loud and chatty and confident, that's great. That's that's really good. But if they're kind of like that in such a way that they don't understand that other people aren't, that's when it's a problem. So, for instance, you might be loud and brash and confident and immediately willing to jump up on stage and do karaoke, but that doesn't mean that the shy guy in the corner is, so don't try and drag <laughs> him up there with you. Yeah. You know, it, that's that's when it can be annoying for me. But I don't I don't have any problem with anyone just in and of themselves being being outwardly extroverted. Just just understand that not everybody else is. For sure. Um, so we're kind of running out of time here. So I wanted to cover a few more things. And I was really curious if you could talk about uh, any work that you're currently working on. Any books? Yeah, I've got two books due to come out this year. Uh, one of them is my first solo collection of short horror. You mentioned earlier that I've got different horror in different books, which I have. Uh, this is the first time that I've got a collection of mine. Most of the stories will be new, but there will be a couple that are reprints of work that's been in before. Like you mentioned the one that's in the Blackwell manuscripts that I believe that is in this collection. Um, and a couple of others, but most of them are new. Uh, that the, the provisional title as of now is called Whistling Past the Graveyard, which is one of the stories, and it's also the title of the book. Um, I'm not at, at this stage now, as we record this, I don't know when that's due to be out, but that's that's one of them. Um, and the other book, which is due to come out sometime this year is uh, an occult detective novel that I've written. It's actually part of a series. I've been working on it for about 10 years now, but I managed to find a a good publisher for it finally. Uh, And that's called The Final Casebook of Mortimer Grimm. Uh, And that is about this detective in Victorian London, whose name is uh, Detective Chester Harkins. And he's got the ability to see aspects of the world that normal people can't see like he can see ghosts and demons and that sort of thing but he doesn't want to he never liked it he's kind of spent most of his life drinking and taking drugs to to block this out because he has no interest in it but then at the very start of the book something happens which forces him to use it and after that he decides he's going to learn more about it so he contacts an occultist who can help him learn about it but it turns out this occultist whose name is Mortimer Grimm is actually dead and he's a ghost but he can't (laughs) he can't move on because the thing that got him killed is still out there so Harkins says right I will help you solve that thing that you were working on so that you can move on and in return you're going to teach me everything you know about this sort of supernatural side to london now harkins himself is very different to your traditional victorian detective he's he's not 
he's not stupid, but he's not like highly intelligent intellectual like a Sherlock Holmes sort of character. He's he's much more street smart. He's from the poor east side of London rather than the, the richer side of it. He's he's more likely to break someone's teeth to get his answers rather than studying how they've tied the shirt buttons up. You know, he's he's much more rough and ready and, and hands on as a detective, which is unusual to see in Victorian literature so i thought that'd be a bit different and and yeah that is uh, the first in a, in a proposed series and it, it set in late victorian london and it, it follows the two of them traveling around investigating cases of ghosts and werewolves and demons and witchcraft and all, all sorts of stuff oh well thanks a lot lex because now we have to add both of those to my deep <laughs> <laughs> yeah sorry about that uh, it, honestly, they both sound really exciting. Um, the the collection you sent me, you showed me the cover, and I think it's just so cool. It looks, it kind of looks like um, a book where you would find how to garden, which sounds, yes. <laughs> no, I know what you mean. It yeah, doesn't sound like, like yeah, it doesn't sound like something. You would have in a traditional horror book, but it works. No, but I didn't want the traditional horror book cover because I'm like, oh, it's going to be black and have a skull on it, isn't it? You know, I, I just thought <laughs> there's, there's too many of that. Let's, let's yeah. do something else. Let's have something else. And, and the design that they came up with was fantastic. So I, I, I like I won't describe it because it might change by the time the book's out. But as, as it stands at the moment, I really like what they came up with and how that looks. I think it sounds great. Your uh, detective book, I want to read that too. Um, is it too soon to know who the publisher is? No, no, no. The publisher for that one, uh, for the detective one, is a UK firm called Sterling Publishing. Um, they're not traditionally a horror publisher, but they wanted to do some dark fiction. And um, my type of horror, as we mentioned earlier, is not like a brutal extreme sort of horror. So this actually fit exactly what they wanted. I think if it was a brutal torture porn sort of horror, they wouldn't have taken it because they're not yeah. that sort of publisher. This is this is a mainstream publisher who, you know, you can buy their books in actual bookshops and, and they do literary fairs and all that kind of thing. It's like a, a traditional quote-unquote publisher who you wouldn't – you I wouldn't usually expect to get any of my work with one of them, to be honest, but this just happened to fit the sort of thing they were looking for when they were looking for it. So it was a, a massive stroke of luck, really. That's awesome, exciting, and congratulations – Thank you. Yeah. Um, I was curious also, what, what books are you currently reading? Oh, I've got a pile on the side of my bed. Um, <laughs> I alternate. I've got a pile of novels and a pile of comic books. Because uh, okay. I, really I read a lot of Batman stuff, uh, and I also buy a lot of the old. I'm not too fond of the modern Marvel stuff. I found that it's got a bit convoluted, and every time I pick up – I can pick up an issue of Iron Man and I don't understand it because I need to have also read the last six months worth of Thor and Spider-Man and Doctor Strange and Captain America. Mm. The films are getting a bit like that. I must admit, the films are getting a bit, you know, I, I love the Marvel films, but the amount of homework you need to do now to understand the latest ones is getting a bit big, you know? Um, but but so Marvel, I, I kind of struggle with the new ones, but I like the old ones, whereas DC, I, I just read Batman. But I've also got a pile of, uh, for Christmas and my previous birthday, uh, my girlfriend bought me a load of 
old 1970s and 80s collections of horror stories. You know, like the mass market paperbacks that you used to find on newsstands, that kind of thing. Yeah, she found she got a load of them off eBay for me, so I've been working through just the kind of stories that they were published once in that book in 1978, and you've never seen them again since. So unless you own that book, you'll never read that story. It's all that kind of one. So I've been because you know, like if you buy one of Stephen King's collections or whatever, there's probably about 50 printings of that. Whereas these ones, it's like a one and done. So you you either buy this book or you you never read it again. So. There's a lot of stories there which you knew I would never have read before, so I've, I've been working through a lot of them. I gotta, I gotta know if you don't mind. I'd like to, after this or sometime later on, send me some of those titles, man. I'd like to yeah, look them up. Absolutely, I'll, I'll send you a photograph of them. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, I said it before about your girlfriend when she got you that watch, Edgar Allan Poe watch. She's a keeper. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah she's she's good. She's a she's actually a special effects makeup artist herself. No kidding. Yeah, she's worked with the guys who did Doctor Who and uh, Harry Potter and stuff. So she yeah, that's, that's what she does. So she's good to have for the costume parties because she can do all the prosthetics and stuff. Wow, that's pretty cool. Um. Are you reading anything else that you wanted to talk about? Not at the moment. Um, that's that's a that's my pile at the moment, which is uh, quite considerable. I keep periodically like adding other things into it, but that's my. I, I'm trying to be really strict with regards to how many books I'll buy before I've read the ones that I've already got, because otherwise I find out I find that you end up owning books for about ten years before you get to them. <laughs> that's funny. Um, I actually so me and my wife. We love to go to uh, thrift shops, and yes. uh, we actually bought a bookshelf for $20, like an old oh, library nice. one. Yeah. I, fil- I filled it up, man. I filled it up with history books. I filled it up with uh, horror books, a lot of Stephen King, and that was before I found out, really dove into the indie horror scene. And uh, Yeah, yeah. Since, since I became a uh, reviewer, I've just gotten so many books that I just had to say I'm done for right now, taking any more on. And, and I've even gotten to the point where I have two TBR uh, piles. One is my immediate TBR pile, and the other ones are books that I will definitely get to. But uh, you, would you like me to tell you what some of them are, my like immediate yes, pile? Yes, please, yeah. All right, so I'm finishing up. I'm on the very tail end of reading Laurel Hightower's uh, Whispers in the Dark. I wanted yeah. to read that. It'd it be impossible for me to read everything of all the people I'm going to meet at Scares That Care, but Laurel's like one of It's like you and her, and there's like a few people that I'm like, I'm sorry, but there's some people that are my favorite, and she's one of them. She's awesome, and I wanted to read her book before I met her. It's so fucking good, man. It's a ghost story. It's oh, also, nice. It's also a mix of like, a, it's got some romance in there, but it's a point of view of a female um, SWAT sniper. And it's just, it's not your traditional horror book. And that's all I'll say about that, but it's it's worth your time. And um, the next few are me and, uh, me and one of my friends, a contributor for Deadhead Reviews. We're getting into classic horror books um that we've never read before and we're gonna actually dedicate episodes to that later on and the first one will be jack ketchum's the girl next door uh 
And at the same time, I'm going to be reading True Crime by Samantha Koyesnik. So uh, I'm looking towards that. It'll be kind of my first extreme horror books. Oh, nice. And then just a couple more. I got Devil's Creek by Todd Keesling. That comes out on June 16th. So I'm going to read it before then. And then I don't know if you've heard of Michael Clark. Yeah. Yeah, man. So he's he's got two books out. They're getting a lot of great buzz. He sent me... Those two first books, and the first one's called The Patience of a Dead Man. That and Devil's Creek, they're both like 400 pages, but they both look just, they look great. Um, so I'll let you know how they are if you're interested. Yeah, well, that, please do. Yeah, yeah. So, sounds like we both got our hands full for reading. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's, uh, I always like to have a full reading pile, but I, I am just trying to keep it manageable. Otherwise, there's stuff that I know will just never actually get read, and that's not fair if I've already bought it. That's what I'm nervous about. about going. So I'm going to my first convention later this summer, uh, Scares That Care, and I actually know like a, a lot of people that will be there, and um, there's a lot of books that are going to be being sold, so I have to limit myself because I don't want to take them on, uh, and especially being like a reviewer too because I want to like review – all these people that I, I really like uh, their books because I just like them as a person, which is why I get into books now. I like the person and I this is why I'm doing the podcast. Like I want people to get to know you and other artists because I feel if you like the person, you'll probably like their books, too. More than likely, that might be so stupid to some people. That's how that's how I am. Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so that's, we're pretty much at an hour and a half, man. Um, wow, that's fun. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about? I don't think so. I think we've covered, um, yeah, you wanted to speak about a children's book and we've done that. We've spoke about what I've got coming and everything. So I think we've, I think we've covered a lot of ground. Well, for anyone that's new to you, I really hope that this inspired them to buy at least one of your books. And I can't speak highly enough about it. The Old One in the Sea is by far of every book I've read, I'd say that's a top contender. It's worth your oh, time. Thank you. Absolutely. If you're a librarian listening to this, it's worth putting in your library. Read it to your kids. Read it to, to get them into horror. That's, I think, the most important thing. Because at, at Deadhead Reviews and with this podcast and myself, we want to promote literacy. We want to make uh, reading exciting. This is what would do it for me if I found a lull in reading, which I did in high school. And I, I stopped reading until I I stopped reading from middle school to the time I met my gr- now wife, but she was my girlfriend at the time. And uh, if she <laughs> if she or someone else showed me this book during that lull, I, I think I would have started getting into reading again. Well, that's a very nice compliment. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, so where can people follow you? Uh, I'm on Twitter at, at Lex H. Jones, and I, I put all the, uh, the the news I've got about writing on there. Uh, I'm also uh, my Amazon page. If you just search for Lex H. Jones, all, all my books can be bought through there. Um, you can get them in most other bookshops as well. All, all my books are traditionally published and they're available in paperback or hardback and one of them is even available as an audio book so you can get them other places as well but amazon is generally like the probably the easiest place where there's like a central hub for them all yeah i'd say so um that 
It has your whole bibliography. Uh, on yeah, there. exactly. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Even if you well, want to look at them on Amazon and then buy them from somewhere else, you can you can do that. Yeah. Um, you know what? I had a great time talking to you, and I would love to have you on another time. Maybe after one of you, yeah, maybe after one of your books comes out this year, or after both of them. Yeah, come of on course. And read them. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. I would love that. Well, it's been a pleasure, and this is actually going to be the inaugural episode, so I am pumped. And I think that you wanted to be a guest on this show when we first talked inspired me to go through with it. So for that, I thank you. You're very welcome, and thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Uh, You have a good day, man. You too. Thank you very much. All right. Bye-bye now, everyone. Bye. We are in your mind. We are all around. You are now leaving Deadhead Space.